Hello and welcome to This Statue Got Me High, an annual podcast in which two married people talk about the statues that made them intoxicated. <laughs> two married people to e- to each other. Right, not just married, right. married to, to one each- another. <laughs> Great point. This is going to be awesome, I can tell already. <laughs> this is John Green. I'm joined here by... A married person. <laughs> Sarah, you're a screen. <laughs> no Sa- relation. <laughs> no. <laughs> Sarah is an art expert, and I am an art enthusiast. And today, we're going to tell each other about works of art. In my case, not a statue. Is yours a statue? Mine's not. Great. Okay. About statues that got us high that aren't statues. It's it's a song. By They Might Be Giants. It's a very good song. Great song. Look it up. Better than the podcast. <laughs> but it's about this statue that made him excited. And I think that in a lot of arts media, that excitement about work yeah. isn't often talked about. It's like discussed in sort of a cold, detached, um, jaded expert kind of way when, you know, it, that that moment of entering a space and seeing an artwork that just flabbergasts you is wonderful. Yeah, I think cold is such a good description of the way that we so often talk about art. And in general, there is an inherent coldness to academia because that's part of having a lot of intellectual rigor, is not approaching it from the perspective of pure emotion. Right. But I have to say that For me, while I do find a lot of intellectual engagement in art and movies and books, what really gets me, and what I want to talk to you about today, actually, is works of art where I do not know why they move me so much. Like, a while back, a while back, Mm -hmm. I was in an airport with you. (laughs) Yeah. We were in, I think, the Denver airport, and we were stuck, and it was a layover, and I had Paige Lewis's book of poems, Space Struck. And I was reading those poems, and I I kept crying. Mm -hmm. And I, I almost never cry when I read, but I kept starting to cry, and I didn't know why. Yeah. It's just that the poems moved me so deeply, and it was my favorite kind of being moved because I didn't know why it was happening. I couldn't see the strings that were holding together whatever puppets were, were were making me feel so deeply. And that is when I feel like art is actual magic, when, mm-hmm. it, when it gets me in a way that I don't understand and also don't want to understand. It's as close as I can come in the secular world to the feeling of the mysterium tremendum, the feeling of the numinous, where you encounter the you know, the great and magnificent and terrifying otherness that is the divine. And I don't have that feeling very often. So I want to start by telling you about a work of art that gives me that feeling. And the backstory to this is that the first time, I think the first two times I saw this work of art, you were like, John, this painting is so good. (laughs) Isn't it so good? And I was like, no, (laughs) I don't know what this painting is about or of, and I don't, I don't, I don't get it. And the artist's name is Miyoko Ito. Miyoko Ito. And it's a painting. It's an abstract painting of geometric forms that have some relationship, like maybe 
it's an abstracted face with long hair. Maybe it's an abstracted landscape. You could make a few cases for it. First time I saw the painting, nothing. Cold, dead, didn't get it. Feel that way about a lot of abstract painting where I look at it and I'm like, oh, I bet that's good, but it just, I don't have the context necessary to understand why it's a work of genius or whatever. And that's how I felt initially about this painting. But then over the last like five five years, we've seen it several different times since then. And at first, like the first time I saw it again, I was like, oh, that's that painting that Sarah likes <laughs> that I don't get. And then there was something about a, a repeat viewing. There was something about being in the presence of this painting again and again. And it just kept like happening across my life that I started to be really moved by it. Mm. And I started to feel almost like I was being pulled into it or drawn into it. Like, who's that painter? Is it Joan Miro? Is that well, right? Well, there, there is, I, yeah, there's Miro, who's yep. in, yeah. Keep talking. No, what, there's, yes. Who makes those abstract paintings where it feels like you're actually inside of them? Those no. big, those big, huge paintings. Joan Mitchell. Joan Mitchell. Okay. Those big, huge paintings where it feels like you're like being yes, pulled inside you're of them. It feels like you're like in an environment of yes. painting. Like it's a yes, it immersive. Is, it is the weirdest experience that I have ever had in front of a painting. Okay. Where I felt like I. That's was, what Rothko wants you to feel. That's what Rothko thinks he's doing, <laughs> but that's what Joan Mitchell is succeeding at doing. So anyway, for you, for me. In the same way that I don't quite understand like how those Joan Mitchell paintings make me feel like I'm on the inside of the painting or like it's immersive or like it surrounds me. I feel that way about this painting. It, 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 it pulls me in, like actually pulls me in. I don't know how else to describe the emotional experience except to say that I feel drawn into it. I feel like the painting has seen something inside of me that I don't know how to express or or I don't have language for mm -hmm. but it has seen it and it has shown it to me and it has like acknowledged and 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 accepted it and there's just something very beautiful almost like beatific about it for mm -hmm. me mm -hmm. well what I what I like about your evolving relationship with this Miyoko Ito painting is that you know for me it underscores the the fact that like art is something that happens between you and the thing. Yeah. Because, you know, this idea that something is or is not a masterpiece mm -hmm. and that the greatness lies in the work. Right. It's just not true. Like you could be having a bad day when you go into the museum and it doesn't work on you. Right. And then like you do go, you know, and then you go back. It's like it's a it's a relationship yeah. that you have to you have to put in something often. Like sometimes you walk into a room and an artwork knocks your socks off, you know. But a lot of times you have to put in the relationship and also you you do have to put in in a little bit of context. And it was yeah. helpful for me to understand other paintings that she made, like I, I, I've now seen much more of her work and to have some biographical context from you that I think probably helps me. And sometimes I, I feel like when you talk about context, people immediately shut off because they're like nothing beautiful or important Needs requires explanation. explanation. Yeah. But in fact, 
all the time we are contextualizing everything right. like like the sense of vision is itself a contextualizing thing like what we see when we look is not actually what we see it's our brain contextualizing a series of images to try to make it make sense so there is there is no there's nothing without context. Well, and you you are bringing into it whatever art education you've had. And everyone yeah. has had art education, whether right. or not you've taken an art history class. Like right. there is something within you telling you what art is and what it should be. And so like when you're when you're looking at something, when you're saying like, oh, this is beyond explanation. I don't, you know, this is clearly great and I can tell it. You know, you can tell that because you have been given this message. It's, it's been imparted to you that art needs to be large painting. It needs to be masterful. And that is great. But um, I just I, I think that I think that it's all about what you're coming uh, to the situation with. That's such a great observation that everyone has had an art education. Yeah. You might just not be aware of it. And like the art education that I received growing up was that renaissance painting especially from italy was the greatest achievement in the history of art and that everything since then was a series of responses to the perfection of renaissance painting or a disappointment or a betrayal of yeah or like nothing could be as great uh, and uh, they are they are amazing right but that's yeah but that's not the whole story right you can you can bring a different set of educational experiences or contextualizing experiences to a work of art other than the one that I was given in middle school and high yeah. school. Yeah. And that's something I've learned over time. And that is, I think, part of why this painting that did not mean a lot to me seven or eight years ago now does mean a lot to me and why I find it now so immersive and so emotionally expressive. Like there's the Salinger novel where Salinger dedicates the book I mean, this is a typical kind of Salinger jerk move, but he dedicates the book to the reader who reads and runs as a way of trying to criticize criticism, oh. as a way of like seeing ahead of people. By that point, he'd, he'd, you know, he'd published enough and he was becoming concerned about the way that his work was being read. And so he was arguing, I want the reader who reads and runs. I want the reader who who feels something deeply and doesn't try to understand why doesn't they felt it. Doesn't pick it apart. Yeah, doesn't, doesn't do that. Like the typical yeah. high school English student who's like, why are you ruining this book by analyzing it right. to the teacher? So what are we doing on this podcast? <laughs> well, but, but we're trying to find ways to explain. It's, I'm just, all that I'm saying is yeah. it's hard to do. It, like you want to talk about art without killing it. Right. But the thing about the reader who reads and runs is that that reader also brings context into the right. story. Yes. And so I guess what I love most about a work of art, whether it's a movie or whatever, is when I feel deeply moved and I, I'm not smart enough to understand why, but I I do feel like something within me or something within human experience has been expressed in a way that I haven't seen it before. Mm -hmm. And that's how I feel about this painting. That's wonderful. What I was thinking about when you were talking about your first experience reading Paige Lewis's book, Space Struck, was that you were in an airport. And the sort of external context didn't really 
matter so much or maybe it did because like with with a lot of art experiences for me and part of this is because I have a background as a curator and I'm always thinking about the container of the art like I'm thinking about where it is and how that is impacting my reading of it you know like whether you see something in someone's home or you see it in an artist's studio or you run into it outside that all of that matters and you know I would guess that the 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 power of the poetry is intact but maybe there were, it was maybe even heightened by the by being by being in like the awfulness of an airport maybe although i would say that i find it much more comfortable to cry at home than i do at the denver <laughs> airport like i i don't know john I, you feel no, comfortable crying a lot of places it's true but i, I I have since cried reading those same poems yeah. at home, and, I, and it feels but more comfortable. But I don't mean but that I know, to I know take what you away mean. from Yeah, that. yeah, But there is no removing the context from which you're going through an experience, and that's really important. And that's why I appreciate it when people say, I saw this here, it made me feel this. Right, and or I saw it at this point in my life. Like when, when you were talking about that, I was thinking about how one of the best art viewing experiences I've had was when I went to this museum in uh, the Netherlands. You didn't go with me. Mm. It was the Kroller Mueller Museum. And I had to take a train. And I was by myself. And I took a train. And then I got off at the train. And then I had to rent a bike to bike through a forest <laughs> to get to this museum. And, it, and then I got there. And I felt like I had sort of taken the steps to yeah. be in the right headspace right to have a good experience right you'd almost like entered in a a new world right like if i was walking through a shopping mall and then passed through some trap door and was in a wonderful museum space and saw incredible works of art like i don't know if i'd be ready yet I feel like actually that would be a very cool experience. <laughs> and if the world's malls are looking for a way to, <laughs> to repurpose kinda, after retail dies, kind of reinvigorate their business model. Yeah, that's a good one. No, the version of that in my life is that there is a um, art museum at the Amsterdam airport. It's like a satellite of the Rijksmuseum. And you would think, I mean, I love airports and I love art museums. It was there. I don't know if it's still I don't know there. if it's still yeah. there. So you would think that it would be a huge win for me. But in fact, like airports are not the proper uh, venue for me in particular to observe like Dutch masterworks. No. Okay. You weren't you weren't sort of set up, right? You need to be in the historic building. Yeah. You need to have I'm, yeah. I maybe even need to stand in line a little bit. You know, just to feel right. like this is a rarefied experience. Right. All right. So that's okay. the statue that got me high. What the is statue the... that got me high yes. or that gets me high when whenever I see the work is um, paintings. Well, it's there. I guess there is a particular one uh, okay. by this artist, Sam Gilliam, uh, who created a series uh, it's his best known series of draped paintings. Yeah. So and they're called his draped paintings because they are canvas that's been painted uh, that is off the stretcher bars. So it's just, you know, the canvas that would normally be stretched over stretcher bars. Yeah. And- so for people who don't know this and I didn't know this. When you see a painting at a museum, like when you see the Mona Lisa, that's on a, a painting on canvas, but that canvas has been stretched and there are these like wooden bars 
that hold Actually, it all together, I'm not right? I'm sure if the Mona Lisa is on canvas oh, well, or what, panel. Okay, well, whatever. <laughs> Most paintings that it we see, you, yeah. you can tell if it's on it's canvas. On and if it's on canvas, it's yeah. usually a stretched canvas so that it's a nice, flat, seemingly two-dimensional surface. Yeah. Of course, no surface is not, really two-dimensional they're dimensional. not 2d they're actually 3d right well ev everything yeah. is um <laughs> 2d is more of a conjecture Concept. yeah <laughs> yeah but so that's what you you usually see in a painting is a stretched canvas so that it appears 2d and right. these are three-dimensional like right. aggressively three-dimensional canvases sam gilliam was creating artwork and making abstract paintings in washington dc as sort of the next step in a generation or a group that's called the Washington Color School, a group of artists who were making abstract paintings um, in alternative and experimental ways, sort of staining the canvas instead of carefully applying paint. And um, he was sort of working in that world. Uh, and this decision to remove, to just use the canvas as it is, was revolutionary at the time and now there's so much strange art. You know, there's yeah. so much weirdness in art that it's sort of like that. It doesn't feel revolutionary anymore. But whenever I come across these paintings, um, there's one in particular that I've seen a number of times at the Walker Art Center in Minneapolis um, that it, it, the last time I saw it, it was hung in this sort of atrium space. And it's a giant piece and it's um, these it's heavily saturated with color deep color and it's hung from the ceiling and it's draped around and it's just this beautiful organic alive thing and there's so much of painting I feel that looks like this is a document of a thing that's happened in the past and it and even though it was painted in the past I think it was paint this like that one I think was painted in the late 60s or early 70s it still looks alive. Right. And it's such a it's such a joy every time I see it. And yes, I'm explaining it here now, but that doesn't truly explain why <laughs> it's great. Yeah. And I still think I, I I'm still sort of processing that. Like why is it still so great for me now, even though that action of it not being stretched is not a shock. Right, that's no longer revolutionary, and some a, a lot of times it's interesting that you mention that because a lot of times art that is revolutionary in its moment does begin to feel very dated, mm -hmm. and that's not true just for visual art. Like that's true in liter literature as well, right? Like some sometimes the, the the example of this I always think about is that in the you know in like the nineteen thirties and nineteen forties. John Dos Passos was seen as overwhelmingly the best American writer. He was very innovative, very experimental. And Faulkner uh, was seen as sort of, you know, an interesting writer because of his uh, alcoholism and because of his uh, regionalism being from Mississippi and everything. And now, of course, Faulkner is seen as the great writer of the 1940s. And John Dos Passos's books are like largely out of print. I've never read read his work well i mean he has one good and i feel like i read a lot of faulkner because i grew up in the south yeah i but... mean john dos passos definitely has a uh a good book a couple good books but but 
they are of a moment mm -hmm. and they were very useful and interesting in that moment and they pushed things forward. Yeah. I mean, another example of this is that like uh, On the Road by Jack Kerouac has survived, even though it's, you know, it's not the it's not like it was the best or most interesting mm -hmm. beat novel. Uh, so I, I think that the, I don't really know the relationship between what survives, like what works but for a contemporary not, audience, yeah. because because it, it isn't one to one. Like it isn't like, oh, the works of genius make it and the, and the, and the lesser works don't. That's way too well, reductive. And it's a constantly shifting yeah. state. So like John Dos Passos may resonate with audiences in 50 years. Totally and be resurrected and we can be seen as the people who didn't who weren't equipped to yeah. to appreciate his greatness. That's kind of happening right now actually with the book Pale Horse Pale Rider which had largely fallen off of the landscape of kind of contemporary American literature courses taught in schools but because it is the great Spanish flu novel in no, American yeah. literature, suddenly everybody's like, yeah. oh, you know, this is actually quite good. Yeah. But I, I like I like that. I like that I something something can sort of not not resonate at a time and yeah. then have a chance later on. It's a reminder that it's not really about the author and it's or the painter, and it's not really about the work. It's really about the like you were saying earlier, it's about the relationship between the audience and the work. And who's who's appreciating it and who's yeah. sort of uncovering those histories and that story. Because like, I don't know, it, you know, it took it took a lot of institutions collecting Sam Gilliam's, Gilliam's work and keeping it in their museums and not only like collecting it at the time, but still displaying it. Right. You know, they had because museums have so much that they don't put out. Right. Like I know I've worked at a museum and there were works that we'd go through storage and be like, eek. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I don't want to put that one out. Right. But who knows? Um, so, you know, someone may be working on an amazing retrospective of that artist that might sort of bring their work back to light. Everybody starts appreciating them. And then you're like, oh, well, we've got one by that artist. And yeah, that's what's so weird about the canon, though, is that it's so it, it's not just about who makes the work it's about who collects it yeah who collects it who decides what work is important who mm -hmm. displays it and then the collectors have a huge say because they can push the museums where they donate to mm -hmm. display work by this artist or that artist or now they're just private collectors are starting their own museums right. and then um you know but i mean but a lot of museums start that way like the yeah. moma you could really call it the rockefeller collection right and i mean it built from there but yeah yeah but this is this speaks to the fact that it's not just important who makes the art it's important which voices we listen to in our critical discourse about the art right so yes it is very important to make sure that we are paying attention to lots of different voices uh, who are creators mm -hmm. but it's also really important that we pay attention to more voices who are looking at art or who are thinking about art or who are reading books instead of having this very narrow definition of the canon that only includes stuff that's either, in the case of visual art, collected by billionaires, which right. largely is the case for the canon, 
or in the case of literature stuff that's, uh, you know, that gets a lot of attention in literature courses at universities. Mm -hmm. But I think that that should give everyone like a feeling of power and agency in saying like you you decide like anybody can make a youtube video for example to or a podcast talking about a given artist that they've seen and that they liked and that's like a small action that helps determine whose work gets preserved and remembered and displayed and redisplayed and talked about and which stories we tell from history like Mm -hmm. which stories we see which stories we place at the center of history like the example of this that's been on my mind recently is that I read a book about the history of the board game Monopoly and then wrote an essay for the Anthropocene Reviewed about it. And it just so happened that as I was publishing this podcast episode, the people who own the board game Monopoly released a version of Monopoly called Ms. Monopoly, which is both like... It's horrifying on every level. Like women who women who are playing Ms. Monopoly get a little more money every time they pass go. Than the, than the male players do, which is a fundamental misunderstanding of everything. <laughs> I'm confused. You should be. Ms. Monopoly is a horror, but the, the thing that, the most offensive thing about Ms. Monopoly. What is the marketing pitch for it, Ms. Monopoly? Now more than ever, girls can be part of Monopoly. But I know what you're thinking. What? Weren't we already? Agreed, but but you weren't already. Because... I was a top hat, such <laughs> a guy. But the thing is, in some ways, this the real crime is that Hasbro continues astonishingly to credit Charles Darrow as the inventor of Monopoly when it was not invented by Charles Darrow. It was invented by a huge collection of collaborators. And if you trace that back to its beginning, it begins not with Charles Darrow, who did essentially nothing, but with uh, uh, Lizzie Meiji, who invented the game. Mm-hmm. And and so when we pay closer attention to those stories, when we tell those stories, yeah, and those stories get spread, that's when like horrible crimes like Ms. Monopoly <laughs> kind of die die on the vine. Yeah. Because people are like, no, that's not the story. And also your refusal to acknowledge the real history of Monopoly because you're like afraid of some lawsuit is is shameful. Right. But like discovering that history takes time and attention. And scholarship. And scholar it really does. And because I mean we both make educational video and there, there is an easy way to do things or an easier way to do things and to use use good research, you know, like established sources, uh, but miss that better, deeper story. And it takes, you know, ordering the obscure book that's, you know, two ninety nine from a strange used bookseller in texas or not you know wherever yeah and then you get it here and you discover this and you're like well this wasn't anywhere in the wikipedia this wasn't anywhere i could find and that's where that's where like the good stuff is yeah and that speaks to i mean we started off by talking about how sometimes scholarship can be very cold and distant and unemotional come back around but we've come around now to talk about the the deep value of scholarship which is that those of us who seek to popularize 
knowledge, whether mm-hmm. it's about visual art or history or whatever, are deeply reliant upon that good, that good scholarship. careful, yeah. somewhat cold scholarship. Right. And right. a lot of times the, the books or the, or, the, or the articles that reveal the most about history or about art or about mathematics or whatever you're studying are not the ones that are written for the broadest possible audience. They're ones that are written for fellow historians or mathematicians or whatever. And so our job as people who try to popularize that stuff or people who try to like share the stories for for a general audience uh, is to try to translate that insofar as possible without losing the nuance and without losing the, you know, all, all of the the real kind of detail and, and, right. and grittiness excavate, of the scholarship. Yes, excavate. excavate. That's a great some verb. Of yes. Those details. Yes. And bring them bring them back to right. add add sort of texture yeah. and like Yes. Yeah. And you wanna and and so really this goes back to the essential thing that you and I I think both think about art, which is that it's not the province of geniuses. Instead it's a collaboration that if it's successful, mm-hmm. includes all of us. Yeah, and and a, I think a a fruitful relationship with any art form is a balance of paying attention, of putting in enough of yourself, whether it's through looking or through research, so that you can have like a deeper relationship with it, but not going so far that it that it kind of like dies for you yeah like i think with a lot of with for me with art like i kind of have to go back and forth (laughs) yeah like i have to take time off from it i have to look away i have to not read scholarly info for a while to kind of restore my 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 true ability to get high off of art (laughs) but but that's exactly it like you don't want to lose that ability to really feel and i i i have to say good scholarship can also can do feel both. that way yeah because when you when you read really good scholarship you have that feeling of discovery mm-hmm. that the that the writer has yeah where they're like oh my god i found like i remember reading one of your essays in the andy warhol enterprises book where you turned over um a, a artwork or a piece of paper or something and you saw something that Warhol had written on the back that no one had ever seen before. And there, there is a that there is a really warm excitement to that yeah. moment. And especially because Andy Warhol is such a big name. And yeah. you tend to forget that he was a person. Right. <laughs> and for me, it, art art gets better when you see it as being the product of actual living beings who have faults and you know uh worry about money worry about money which andy warhol did all the time even after he didn't have to anymore yeah yeah one of my favorite details about him is that you could tell the difference bringing back to stretched canvases you could tell the difference between the canvases that andy stretched or one of his assistants because he would use the absolute fewest number of staples because he was so he was so tight with money yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to leave. I this, think so, too. The statue got me high. We look forward to making this for, for you again in another Perhaps. year. Yeah.
It's our annual yeah. podcast. It brings us great joy, and we really appreciate you donating to the 2019 Project for Awesome. Thank you so much. We, we deeply appreciate it.